Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, God's Covenants. The Bible is structured by a series of covenants, all of which are focused on and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The goal of these covenants is to create and redeem a people in whom God might dwell so that they will glorify and enjoy Him forever. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're uh, going to be looking in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 today. I'm just going to be reading two sections out of it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and then chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. And as always, you're going to be able to follow along on the screens. It's also there in the welcome booklet. And um, it's also going to be, uh, you can follow along in your Bible or if you've got your Bible on an app. Uh, you can follow along that way. We're really kind of covering the first two chapters. We're spending three weeks looking at it, but I'm just going to read kind of these excerpts, and we're going to talk again about the covenant of creation and specifically what it means to be human. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. If you're uh, new, this will be on the very first page of your Bible probably. So hear now God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we'll be beginning at verse 18. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. A couple of years ago, there was uh, both a movie that I really liked and a TV show that uh, I had really gotten interested in. The TV show was called Humans. It was actually made over in Britain. It was a sci-fi show that only lasted a couple of seasons, unfortunately. Then the movie was one called Ex Machina, which did pretty well. And I bring them both up because they they had one thing in common. They were both about a, a supposed futuristic time when artificial intelligence had advanced to such a place that there were these robots that it was very difficult to tell if they were human or not. And the underlying theme in both the TV show and the movies was, what does it really mean to be human? What if this artificial intelligence becomes self-conscious and self-aware? 
does that make it human? What rights would it have? What would, what would be uh, the way that we should treat them? And it's a very, very important question, actually, to try and work through this idea of what is it makes us human? Why are we supposedly something distinct and different, or are we something distinct and different? And so we're going to be talking about that today, and we're kind of looking at it actually through this whole covenant of creation. We saw last week dealing with our relationship with creation and what inherently is built into humanity in our relationship with creation. This week we're going to look at our relationship with ourselves, so to speak, myself as a person, and then with other human beings. And then next week we'll look at uh, what it means to be under God and our relationship with God, because those three facets define what it means to be human. So let's, we're going to dive in and talk just in kind of some general terms. It's going to remind us a little bit of last week and just some kind of overarching themes. And then I'm going to talk specifically about a couple of areas that come out of these texts. The first and most important thing I want to remind us, and this is what is essential in what it means to be human. If you have to boil humanity down to one thing, it is that we are the image of God himself. That's what it means to be human, is that we are the image of God. So notice in verses 26 and 27, when God is going to create humanity, we're told that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, kind of have a conversation among themselves. And it's the first time that this happens in the Scripture, actually, where God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then in verse 27, we're told that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so human beings, the essential thing that God wants us to know right from the very beginning is we are the image of God. Nothing else is called the image of God. We are set apart and distinct because whatever that image is, it's what defines us. And it's important to understand that this text in Genesis is not saying humans are called to strive to become the image of God. This is not a call that if we labor and work, uh, we will attain it eventually. Rather, it's a gift of God that's intrinsic to our very nature. To be human is to be in the image of God. There is no other way. We can distort and mar and, and mess up that image but we're not striving to attain it. It is something that is God's gift to us from the beginning. Now, that's got implications. And like I said last week, just to briefly review, we have that brings implications in our relationship with the rest of creation. And you remember there were four words that are used in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 relative to our work with creation, that we were to rule over creation and subdue it, and we were to work it, which was kind of on the one side that we had a responsibility to actually develop and have authority over creation. But on the other side, there was a thing that we were to take care of it, that Hebrew word shamar, which is used for the Lord bless you and keep you. And God watches over you. It means to protect and care for something. And so we saw that there's kind of these dual guardrails that God gives us. We are to rule over creation, but we are only stewards. We are to protect and care for for creation but it's not only our relationship with creation that's part of the image of god it also deals with what it means just to be human because we are the image of god 
Every single human being has immense intrinsic dignity and value. Whatever we do with our work, we have value not because of what we can produce, but because of who we are. If you want to think about it this way, some people have used the quip, we are not human doings, we are human beings. We are made to work, which we saw last week, but your value does not come from your labor. Your value comes from the fact that you are the image of God. It's also important to notice that this image of God is both male and female. It's not that one is the image of God and the other is not. Our very human sexuality as male or female is part of the image of God. I'm going to come back and discuss this in a few moments. But it's, it's really important to see that both male and female together we bear the image of God. And really it comes to its fullest expression in a relationship between us which we'll again talk about. And so, as the image of the triune God, notice there in these verses, God says, let us make man in our image. And theologians have debated this, but I think there's no way, as a Christian, understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, to not see that right here, we are being created in the image of the Trinity, the divine community, and that has relational implications for you and I. God says, let us make man in our image, and let them do these things we are relational communal creatures because we are made in the image of God and what that means is how I treat other human beings is of great import it is a central part of the covenant of creation and it's a central part of what it means to be human if you want to degrade your humanity then degrade the way you treat other human beings you will, you will start to degrade who you are, regardless of what you think about yourself, by the way that you are actually treating other people. Now, let me remind us before we, we dive in and talk about how we're called to treat other people or what these things mean, that this applies to all human beings. There are covenants we're going to go through in this series as we're looking at all the covenants in Scripture that are specifically applied to believers. If you are a Christian, you are in the new covenant. If you are not a Christian, you are not in the new covenant. But whether you are a Christian or not, you are in the covenant of creation because it's all human beings and so the things that i'm talking about today and last week and actually next week apply to all human beings if you are human you are in this covenant the same thing will we will see is true in the covenant of preservation with noah it applies to all human beings and so that's important because this covenant defines what humanity is and our relationships with other human beings is a core part of our obligations in this covenant. And you bear these obligations whether you're a Christian or not. You don't get these, well, once I became a Christian, well, now I fell under this and I have to start doing that. No, this is true whether you are a Christian or not. There is no escape from this. And it's really important because to understand, even if you are not a Christian, 
My hope for you would be that you would flourish in your humanity. Of course, I really want you to become a Christian. I want you to come to Jesus where you can truly flourish. But even if my next door neighbor is not a Christian, I still want them to flourish in their humanity. And we can only flourish to the degree which we walk in line with the way that we were made. Human beings who strive to act like dogs are not flourishing because we were not made dogs. That's a different creation God made. I've been actually reading, uh, I just finished yesterday, Don Quixote, the old, uh, you remember, we, we've all heard little bits about it, but it's a very funny novel when you read it because this guy's had his mind warped by these old uh, books of chivalry and being a knight, and he's, his whole picture of the world and how he's trying to live his life has been shaped by these false stupid ideas and so he's running around fighting windmills and imagines he's in all these battles and he can't see life correctly and the longer the book goes he, he becomes known as the knight of the ill-favored face because he's been beaten and battered and he's lost most of his teeth and life is not going well with this guy because he's living in unreality and if you and I don't live in the covenant of creation, Christian or not, we're living in unreality. And we can't flourish when we do that. Now let me make two other points before I dive in. Number one, for those of you who are familiar here, normally at the end I go through applying the word where I ask a bunch of questions. There's so much information, I'm going to kind of do it as we go along today. And applying the word is really going to be at the Lord's table. Okay? So just be aware of that. Secondly... I want to begin by reminding us of what we sang, and the songs were so excellent this morning. I want to remind you as we begin this of the gospel, okay? You may be here and in violation of some of these things that we're going to talk about. You may be here and be struggling with some of those things. Or you may be here and there's somebody you care about that is struggling with these things. I want to remind us of the power of the gospel. What we sang earlier, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. I am not here because I have kept the covenant of creation. I have not. I am here because I have not kept the covenant of creation. I am not a pastor because I have kept the covenant of creation. I, one of the things that God used to call me into being a pastor is I was so grateful for his mercy when I realized how he had forgiven a sinner like me. And friends, that is not just a past tense thing. I am grateful for the mercy of God every day. So if you are here, and as I go through these things, you are struggling with some of them, do not give way to condemnation. Remember, and I'm going to come back at the end to the gospel. The gospel is central, and there is no sin, there is no transgression that God says, my mercy is not big enough for that. No matter how wide your sin, God's mercy is wider. No matter how deep your transgressions, and no matter how marred and messed up we are, God's mercy is more. So let us come behold the wondrous mystery. Now, our covenant responsibilities to humanity, what are they? How are we supposed to treat one another, or what does it mean to be human within ourselves, and then how do we treat one another? The first thing that comes up is within myself, the significance of human sexuality. 
the significance of human sexuality. Notice in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we're told that you know, God's going to create man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, and we might think that that just means male. But God says right then, male and female, he created them. Which is good news, because the very first command from God is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth which requires male and female to accomplish what God has called us to do. So human beings are inherently created male or female. This isn't for Christians. This is all human beings. It is central. It's in the very first thing we're ever told about human beings. And this male and female dichotomy uh, and necessity is reinforced, actually, when we get to chapter 2 as well. And he's going to deal with marriage, which we'll come back to fully in a couple moments. But notice, when we get there, we discover in chapter 2 that actually there, it kind of slows things down and expands out what went on. And we discover that actually Adam, the Hebrew word is Adam, which basically means dirt. Adam was taken out of the dirt, and it was just the male, Adam. But... When we come to verses 23 and 24, or actually before that, Adam realizes he's, he, he can't fulfill this corporate aspect of who he's made to be. And so God puts him into his sleep, and he makes another human being out of Adam, Eve. And here's what we read in verses 23 and 24. When he brings her to Adam, Adam says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Notice, he doesn't just make another human being. He doesn't make one who's exactly like Adam in every respect. He makes another human being, but this human being is different. Adam is male. She, Eve, is female. And whereas Adam, when, when you're reading through Genesis chapter 1 and the early parts of 2, whenever you're reading man, the Hebrew word is Adam, from which we get Adam. But here where it says, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, it's not Adam. It's Ish and Isha. Isha being woman, meaning out of man, and Ish being the male of the species. The Hebrew word is very clear. There is a male and there is a female. These are not, a, Adam can actually be used to refer to a man or a woman. It means a human, basically. Ish can only refer to males. Isha can only refer to females. And so, and notice then when he talks about the, the first human community that we're gonna come back to, it's spoken of in terms of human sexuality. A man, a male, leaves his male parent and his female parent and is united to a female and the two become one flesh. That's what the text says. Right here at the beginning before there is a fall. And this is not only, we might think, well, they all got completely messed up in the fall. But interestingly, in Matthew chapter 19, People like to, uh, this is just a freebie. Whenever you hear people say Jesus didn't speak about this, you know, I'm a red-letter Christian, tell them you need to be a Bible Christian. Because if it's in Genesis 1, who spoke it? 
Jesus. Genesis 1 is not less the Word of God than the book of Matthew, okay? That's just free bit of theology for you, but it's an important bit of theology. But Jesus did speak to these issues. In Matthew 19, some Jewish leaders came up, and there were basically two schools of thought. One said, you can get divorced, but it's pretty strict reasons. The other said, nah, if she burns your toast in the morning, get rid of her. Basically is what it was. You can just, for any reason and every reason, you can get rid of a woman and you can go off and marry another. And they come to Jesus and they say, which one of these views is true? And what I love is Jesus says, let's go back to the text. So he says, let's go back. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So notice in Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? That's Genesis 1.27. And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus was asked about divorce, was what the question was. But Jesus says, we got to go back and understand what it means to be human before I can even answer that question. And it's important for you to understand what it means to be human is God made you male, and God made you female. This is kind of like when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, I'm going to give you two. Because you can't really understand the one without the other. And you can't answer a question about marriage and divorce without understanding God made us male and female. And a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So he specifically stresses this because it's foundational to our humanity. And we can't understand marriage we can't understand family. We can't understand human community and our responsibilities to that human community without understanding this. Now, this is important because most of y'all have probably not noticed, but there's a lot of debate in our culture right now over human sexuality. Has anybody heard anything about that out there right now? It's all over the place in our culture. And I want to be clear why this is going on. We're going, to, we're going to hit multiple issues today. The ultimate reason behind this is Satan hates you. Satan hates the image of God. And human sexuality lies at the core of what it means to be human. And it lies at the core of the image of God within us. And he is prompting us to be at war against that image in any and every way possible. We have been doing this since the fall. I remind you, we have the fall in Genesis 3. What is the very next story we read in the Bible? Cain and Abel. And what does Cain do to Abel? He literally strikes out and murders him. What is he murdering? The image of God. And you remember God says, where's your brother and what's his word? Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you are. <laughs> that was kind of the point. That's what it means to be in my image. You are your brother's keeper. But see, we have been striking out one way or another against this. And so we need to understand that the, you know, the, the current moniker is the LGBTQ plus revolution. But this all goes back to the sexual revolutions that have been going on since I was a young kid, which was a long time ago. And they're not side issues, friends. They strike at the very core of what it means to be human.
They are a rejection of the image of God, and they are wreaking havoc in the lives of individuals, families, and society at large. And please hear me in this. This is not a statement to be mean or nasty or reject people who are going through confusion over their sexuality. You're not going to hear me stand up here and make jokes about it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, or any of that kind of stuff. It is a deep confusion that is being foisted upon us by our culture. And we, of all people, must have compassion. We, of all people, need to be praying We need to be laboring. We need to be loving and serving others. This world is a broken, messed up place. We were just hearing this morning and praying for all kinds of confusion over this that's going on in Iran right now. Okay, They got all the laws there, but it doesn't change the wickedness of the human heart. And the the kids coming out of that, make no mistake, their lives are shattered. And they don't know who they are. And it can happen to any one of us. And so we need to react with compassion. But we need to stand on truth. And truth is we are made male and female. And so the question that we would be asking ourselves, and maybe this is one you'll meditate on during the week, is do I embrace and live a biblical view of human sexuality? Okay, what I just said would get me shouted down on TV. If I go stand out at the docks and say this, people are going to call me a bigot and a hate monger and all of that. And I understand that. They're wrong. That's just part of the way it is, okay? But we simply cannot go along because if you want to flourish, you can't flourish if you're confused at the core of who you are. So do we understand that? Second area is the centrality of the family. Notice this is right here in the text. So in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. So notice there's all these plural commands there because God, despite our culture, which is highly individualistic. What Julie was praying this morning, thank you for your prayer. Uh, our our culture is all about self-actualization and what I, what I want to do and, and my individuality and, and nobody can place restrictions on me. God says right from the beginning, no, it's about you all, y'all. That's what it's about right from the beginning. It'd be so much easier if we just kept the language the way it was supposed to be, y'all. Because humans are created in God's image for community. That's how we are made. You are made for community, and so am I. It's another area. We are getting so isolated now. I'm not against technology, but, but we are making it where you don't even have to leave your house anymore. I can live on my little device in my digital world. That is not what you were made for, and it's not what I was made for. We were made for community. And it begins with the community of the family. Notice, before there's human community, there's Adam and Eve brought together. And they are to be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. They are to have children. And it happens the same way for every one of us. Our first community is family. Before we have any other uh, 
community out there. Now, the same message is further teased out again in Genesis chapter 2. That's why we read these two chapters together. So notice in verses 18 and 24. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, let's remind ourselves, at the end of all the days in Genesis 1, what does God keep saying? It was good. It was good. It was good. You go through to the seventh time, and the seventh time it was very good. Okay, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know seven's kind of a big number. God is saying, man, I have knocked it out of the park. And then suddenly we get to Genesis 2.18, and God says, whoa, that is not good. It is, it is shocking. It is startling. It's, it's like terrible feedback or something. And, and I mean, it just makes you stop and say, what in the world is going on? And God says, it is not good. Adam is sitting there alone, and he's made for community. And so I've got to do something about this. And the very first community comes out in verse 24. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And so God gives us family for the need of community. It's a man and a woman and children coming from the union. Once again, we're back to the human sexuality, but notice it's there. And so what this means is the family is a covenant institution created by God, and it's the basis of all other human community. You and I, no human society created family. God did. And it's his gift to us. Our responsibility, like his gift of creation to us, is to steward it. We're not free to define what it is and what it not is. And let me say, this is why, because this is wrapped up in the image of God, this is why God hates divorce. It is not that God was sitting around one day and was like, you know, just kind of in a bad mood today. I think I'm going to give some rules. God hates divorce because it's another way of striking out against the image of God. We were created so that the two would be one, ever growing, ever pressing into one another. And divorce says we're going to separate that. We're going to rend it. We're going to pull it apart. And we're literally going to go in the opposite direction of what God has made. And so make no mistake, divorce is a sign of our war with the image of God. But secondly, and even more importantly in what marriage is and why uh, when there's divorce it's, a, it's an undermining of the image of God, is the covenant institution of marriage is ultimately a reflection of Jesus' relationship with his people, the church. Okay, If you're here and you're married... Let me give you the bit of information. It's not about you. Your marriage is not about you. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your personal fulfillment. It's about you being a picture of Jesus in the church. That's what it's about. Now, you want to talk about cutting across the way our culture is? You go out and you read. Marriage is devolved into me trying to figure out how to manipulate my wife to give me what I want while she tries to manipulate me to give her what she wants, and then we can't figure out why this isn't working out well. I mean, really? This is not rocket science. But it's not about me. It's not about her. It's not about my personal fulfillment and happiness. It's about saying there is a relationship that existed prior 
to my marriage, and that relationship is Christ and the church. And I am called to make sure that my relationship with my wife is an accurate picture of that. Now, why do I say this? Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's actually going through marriage and family. And in verses 31 to 33, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? He's quoting Genesis 2. He says, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, the whole section has been about a husband and wife. But Paul's saying, you need to understand something. When you read Genesis 2, 24, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Paul says, if you're not thinking about Jesus, you're not reading Scripture correctly. So see, I'm not the original guy that says you ought to be seeing Jesus everywhere in Scripture. That's what Paul's saying. I read that, and I'm tracking. It's Jesus and his people. Now, look, certainly you husbands, you need to love and care for your wives. You wives, you need to respect your But you need to understand, this is about Jesus and the church. He's doing the same thing Jesus did in Matthew 19. Paul's saying, if you want to understand marriage, you've got to go back to the foundation. And at the foundation, it is a reflection of Christ in the church. And please hear me. It is not that God decided he was going to have a relationship with his people, and he searched about and said, oh, you know what? Humans have got that marriage thing going on. That's a good idea. No, there was eternally a plan for God to have a relationship with his people, and therefore he created marriage as a picture of that. Now, of course, what that means is if I start fiddling around with the nature of marriage, or I violate what marriage is called to be, what I'm actually doing is marring the picture of Jesus and the church. It's ultimately not about me. Please hear me, it's not even about the kids, as important as that is. It's about Jesus and the church. If I do not treasure my wife as Christ treasures the church, I am telling my unbelieving neighbors, you have every right to not believe the gospel. Because this is how Jesus would treat us. Now that's, friends, that, that, if you're a guy, please, <laughs> I'm hard on guys about this. We ought to wake up every morning and that ought to make you quake in your boots and cry out for the grace of God. But friends, that's the stakes that are here. Now, what this means is, and I want you to think, when we come to the Ten Commandments, remember the first four are about our relationship with God, and then Commandments 5 through 10 move through our relationship with other human beings. And oddly enough, when you think about it moves, when you go from Commandments 6 to 10, it's murder, which is the worst thing you can do to a human being. And then there's adultery, which is the second worst. And then you can steal from them, and then you can lie about them, and finally you can covet what there, what's theirs. Notice it's getting less and less and less. But what's odd is, where's the whole thing about family? Before murder. Have you ever thought about that order? But see, what God's saying is, make no mistake, as bad as murder is to human community, if you really want to mess up human community, mess up the family. Because it'll undermine everything. The whole structure is going to topple. That's what he tells us in the Ten Commandments. So the question for you and me is, do I embrace and live a biblical view 
of the family. And friends, this goes in a whole lot of ways. Look, look in our culture right now, this is not just about, you know, since the Obergefell decision and we've got gay marriage, this is, this is about what started actually, unfortunately, with Governor Reagan in California, which is, ah, there's no fault divorce. It's nobody's fault. Really? How, how is it nobody's fault? Easy to, it is far easier to break up a marriage than it is to break up a corporation. Might I suggest to you that that's insane? But that's where we are as a culture. So do I embrace a biblical view of the family? Now those are things that are, first it's my relationship with myself, my sexuality, the way God has made me. Secondly, with the family. Third area is the vital importance of human dignity and the sanctity of life. So I'm now stretching out from myself, past my family, to the rest of humanity. Notice again in verses 26 and 27, God three times refers to us as being made in his image, and then he adds in, in parallel fashion, his likeness. This is stressing the point, and it's underscoring the immense dignity and value of every single human being. There are no mere humans. A quote I've put up many times before, and I'm going to put up right now, this is C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life to ours is as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, Marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The most awesome thing you are going to run into today is sitting next to you. Whoever they are. Because they are the image of God. And it gets no higher than that. I, I have no assurance from reading all of scripture that america will even make it till jesus returns much less have anything to do in the eschaton and the final deal that the nations are still going to be here but i do know what will be there is human beings they will survive into the eschaton and that's why god takes every human being seriously this is looking forward a little bit but we'll come to this uh, in a couple of weeks but in genesis 9 6 God kind of reinstitutes, and we'll see, brings back the covenant of creation a lot when he's talking with Noah. But he says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. Now whatever else we think about this text and however else we want to handle it, it is very, very clear that God is saying nothing is more important that should make you sit up and take notice than when a human being is killed. And when they are, because it is striking at the image of God, there are serious consequences. And that's true whether you think that the blood has to be shed because you killed the image of God or that human beings are responsible to dispense the justice because they are in the image of God and therefore able to do it. No matter which way you take the text, it's saying the image of God is so important. God says, I take it so seriously 
you have to sit up and pay attention. If someone has shed human blood, it's going to be requiring their life. So how we treat other human beings, not just myself, not just my family, any other human being with whom I have contact is an essential aspect of whether I violate the covenant of creation or not. Now, there are so many things we could do a whole series on just this topic. So I'm going to pick out two, both because they are very current in our culture, but also because of the day I happen to be preaching this sermon. So the first one is abortion. And that's because today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Now, again, I want to remind you as we head into these, I want to tell you, if you are here and you've had an abortion, can there be forgiveness? Absolutely. The blood of Christ is sufficient for every sin. If you are a man and you talk some girl into having one, there can be forgiveness. Repent, confess, receive cleansing from Christ. So I'm saying that as I jump into these two things. Abortion. So it's Sanctity of Life Sunday, but friends, Sanctity of Life is not one day a year. This happens to be the Sunday that's closest to Roe v. Wade, but Sanctity of Life is every day, 24-7, 365. Human life begins at conception. Remember that little picture I had last week? We had the acorn, and then we had the, the, the little zygote, you know, shortly after uh, conception. Human life begins there. Everything else is just the growth of the human who already exists. I'm the same guy I was when I was a young midshipman at the Naval Academy. Older, grayer, more decrepit, but the same guy. And I'm actually the same guy I was when I was a kid. And I'm the same guy I was the day I was born. And I'm the same guy I was at conception. And think of all the things that we now know scientifically that were already set in. They were already there. My skin color, my eye color, how much hair I would have or not have. Okay, all those things were already set in. And friends, this statement that I'm making, it's true biblically. David says that, you know, that, that his sin began at the moment of conception. Jeremiah says when he was still in the womb, God had already given him the call to be a prophet to the nations. When Jesus, only weeks old in the womb of Mary, comes into the presence of John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, leaps and says, I'm in the presence of my Master and my Lord. They're both still in the womb. Jesus is the only way. Mary can, there's probably no sign that Mary is even pregnant at this point. But yet the scripture says John the Baptist, who's still in the womb, already recognizes who Jesus is. But it's not just true biblically, it's actually true historically. The Hippocratic Oath that's been taken for thousands of years by doctors, what does it promise regarding abortion? I will not practice this because they recognized they had the common sense to know they're supposed to be saving life not killing it it is true logically scientifically any other way you want to conceive it it's easy to prove it only makes sense if we look at it this way but that's not the way we are the day i was finishing up my teaching i think it was tuesday the Capitol had an article, big article, full of euphemisms that 
the Planned Parenthood Clinic on West Street was expanding to increase health care and treatment. It's treatment, all right. It's treatment that kills a human being. And they're doing this because they're anticipating a 60%, 66% increase in their business over the next two years. May God forbid. May he have mercy. Many of us have been down there and prayed in front of that clinic. I'm grateful to God that there's a crisis pregnancy center right across the street from that clinic. And, and the difference between them is night and day. Friends, this is an insanity that has come on our culture. And I want you to see, it's the same thing as the other things I've talked about. It's another fruit of our attack on the image of God. We'll attack in the womb. And don't even get into now all the other ways. If you are infirm at the end of life, we will attack and kill then. Because you've lived out your value. If you have certain genetic challenges, we will attack and kill then. This is nothing other than declaring war on the image of God. And it's what we've been doing since the fall. Now, what this means is to support abortion or to support those who politically support abortion is sinful and wicked. Let me be clear. I, I don't preach politics here. This is not politics. It's covenant of creation. It is murder. That's what it is. And we cannot in any way, shape, or form be part of it. Because when we do, make no mistake, what you're actually doing is hacking off your own image of God. Hacking it to pieces. Destroying your own humanity. A culture that kills. You want to know what kind of a culture you live in? How do we treat the weak? The powerless. Those who have nothing to give to me. And there is nothing more weak, more powerless, who gives less. I mean, let's face it, a baby in the womb is doing nothing but taking, taking, taking. A amen from the women who've been pregnant before? And then that continues, what, till they're like 25? or no, I don't know. So do we, do we understand this? So the question here is, do I have a biblical view of the sanctity of life in the womb? Does it govern my personal prayers and actions and voting? does it make no mistake this is a line in the sand now let me jump to another issue this is also martin luther king day and so we need to understand sanctity of life does not end at the birth canal racism is a major problem not a hundred years ago not somewhere else today here our nation was born in racism, friends. It just simply was. And we have never fully grappled with it yet. And we as Christians must understand, every human is equally the image of God. In fact, the very term racism, you know the problem with that? 
It assumes that there are different races. There aren't different races. There are different ethnicities. There is one human race. Every human being you look at is in your family tree because we only came from one place. It runs back to Noah, and then it runs back to Adam and Eve, and that's where we came from. There, is not mul- there, there aren't multiple races. There's one human race. And when we degrade another person because of their ethnicity, or their nationality, we are attacking the image of God. Just as surely as we do when we attack a child in the womb, or we uh, reach out to murder someone or do whatever else, racism is an attack on the image of God. And we need to understand, we have a dark history here in our culture, so it is very current for us. We were a nation that was born in slavery, We were a nation that continued practicing slavery when the rest of Europe was looking at us like we were barbaric. How are we continuing this? We had to fight a war where over a half a million people died to try and resolve it, and all that did was birth Jim Crow for a hundred years. Friends, I grew up down south. I realized and saw it. And even after that, I remember in the 1990s, I went and discovered that in the medical clinic in the county where I grew up, there had been two waiting rooms and they were still being used that way. And I didn't even know it. And I found out I had wandered into the one that was supposed to be for African Americans. I was like, that's why everybody was looking at me like I was crazy, I guess. And I was furious when I found this out. How can we still be doing this? Has nobody ever heard of Dr. King? We're not aware that this whole thing went on. It is a problem that is there. And we as Christians need to be engaged in this and understand. If everybody else doesn't get it, if they think that we've climbed out of some primordial goop, then maybe they can mistreat each other. We cannot. Because every human being is the image of God. Every last one of them. And we cannot think, speak, or act in a racist manner. And we cannot give a pass to those who use racist language for political ends or cultural ends or anything else. To do so is sinful and wicked, and it is an attack on the image of God. And it is politically expedient oftentimes to do that. It just simply is. Now this includes not only races within our borders, it includes refugees, immigrants, and others attempting to come to our country. Sanctity of life does not end at the birth canal. Sanctity of life does not end with my race. It does not end at our borders. If they are a human, they are worthy of our care and our respect and actions. So that means in our language and actions, we have to remember what we're always dealing with is the image of God. And how we speak and act towards other humans is how we are speaking and acting towards God himself. So, last question, then we're going to come to the table. Do I have a biblical view of the evil of all forms of racism? And does that biblical view govern my personal speech, actions, prayer, and voting? If I can urge you, If you are a social media user, please be careful what you post on social media. There's a lot of stuff that's really popular that's also really racist. 
okay? We, we, we can't participate in that. We need to be those who are being remade into the image of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to live that. So it's just important for us to understand that. And I would encourage you, I've been on a years-long journey of trying to read, talk, dialogue, understand this very topic. It's important for us to do that. Maybe that's something the Lord will speak to you about. Now, what I'm going to do in applying the word and leading us to the table, we're not really going to do applying the word. I just want to remind us that Jesus is the perfect image of God for us. If you're sitting here, you and I all struggle, whether it's racism, like I said, maybe you've been involved in abortion, maybe you're struggling with your human sexuality, maybe you've been through divorce, whatever else. I want to remind you, we are again here because, not because we kept the covenant of creation, but because Jesus did. He is the second Adam. We sang that song this morning, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It's got that line, Behold, what is the, the, pure and be, the true and better Adam? Come to save the hell-bound man. Who was the hell-bound man? You and me. That's who it is. And thanks be to God, there's a second Adam. Because the first Adam messed this whole thing up. And we've been joining in with him ever since. But Christ is the true image of God. We fail at bearing it, just like Adam did, in our own actions and the way we treat others. But Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. And I want to remind you, this is the glory of what God did. In the incarnation, Jesus went through every phase of the covenant of creation and what it means to be, a, uh, to be human and to fulfill it for us. I remind you, when Jesus came, did he just pop out on the street one day a full-grown man? How did it begin? Conceived in the womb of the virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, there's a reason for that. Your humanity started at the moment of conception, and so did his. And he has fulfilled and sanctified every stage of human existence, from conception to death, and he has done it in our place. He was born, he grew, he lived in full obedience to God for all of humanity and has fulfilled the covenant. And I want to remind you, if you move forward to the end, to tie in what else we've talked about, when we get to Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of time, what is it called when God comes and dwells with his people? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? Because he's doing that. Again, ours is just a picture. Every aspect of your humanity and mine is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. In a world that forsakes and breaks covenant vows, Jesus is the perfect bridegroom who loves his bride even when we've been unfaithful. And he keeps us and he woos us and he brings us back. And so today we're going to come to this table which is a precursor of that uh, marriage covenant of that wedding supper of the lamb and i want to encourage you again to come here if you are a believer and you understand what i've been talking about the gospel you are welcome here at this table if you're not a christian this is a covenant that's just for christians because taking this proclaims i believe jesus has lived and died for me but if you are i want to encourage you please be here. it doesn't matter if you're struggling with any of these areas i've talked about the struggle is why we need the grace that's why we need the table. If you're here and you're saying, I've done some of these things, 
Do not give way to condemnation. Receive the grace of God. If it was up to us, none of us would be at this table. I would never touch these elements if it were based on my obedience. But it's not, thanks be to God. So I encourage us all to come and to receive. If you have a need for gluten-free, raise your hands and we will pass that on to you. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this table as it is a reminder that though we have failed, Jesus has succeeded in our place. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and meet with us, encourage us, minister to us grace, forgiveness, and strength, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them. We will take them together in just a couple moments. Our triune God, we were made in your image and likeness, enabling us to fulfill the covenant of creation. However, we have rejected your covenant and distorted and spurned your image, both in ourselves and others. But Jesus, you came the true image of God. You have fulfilled our covenant obligations, bearing and displaying the true image of God. From the time of your conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, through your birth, obedient life, and sacrificial death. Today we confess not only the sins we have done, but also your covenant obedience and righteousness, which is given to us, your people. Take and eat, giving thanks for the body of Christ. Lord, you have commanded that we respect and honor your image in each and every human. This would seem to be easy, and yet we have failed miserably. Whether through our own words or actions, or turning a blind eye to the words and actions of others that degrade, reject, harm, or even kill, we have failed to honor your image bearers as we ought. But Jesus not only obeyed in our place, in his sacrificial death, he bore the punishment we were due. His blood was poured out so that our sins might be forgiven. So we give you thanks for his blood and its power to cleanse us from the penalty and the power of sin. Friends, take and drink, giving thanks for the blood of Christ. Lord, at this table we have looked back to your original covenant, to our own sins, and to the life and death of Christ in our place. But at this table, we also look forward to the day of your return, 
when we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will see our bridegroom Jesus face to face, when the restoration of your image in us will be complete. Lord, we long for that day. Until that day, please empower us to live as those created in your image, loving you supremely and loving, honoring, and serving those made in your image, Christian or unbeliever, rich or poor, friend or enemy, whatever their ethnicity or stage of life, may we see your image and love and treat them accordingly. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see your image in them and to treat them the way that that image deserves in our thoughts, words, and deeds. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, the true image of God. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. And as always, we'll end with the word of benediction, and I encourage you to receive God's word of blessing. This is from 1 Thessalonians 3. encourage you to receive God's blessing, and then let's go forth and spread it. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow to each other and for everyone else. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.